The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And we want to come one final time to our study of Ephesians chapter 4. We come to the final two verses of this marvelous chapter. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we've been working our way through this series that we've entitled The Transformed Life. And we're looking at specific ways that the gospel needs to affect our life. We've seen that we have been made new creatures in Christ, and we now want to look at some very specific ways that that change needs to manifest itself in our lives. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. Please follow along as I read our text for this morning. <clears throat> Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry. And yet do not sin, do not let the sun go down in your anger, do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You remember that we said that when a person comes to Jesus Christ, they are brought into a completely new relationship. And they are completely transformed. When someone genuinely comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, their passions, their thoughts, their, their desires, their motivations, their actions are changed and transformed from the inside out. In verses 20 to 24, Paul wants us to be remembered to remind ourselves of the fact that you, when you come to Christ, the old person is put away and a new person comes. You become a new man, a new woman the great joy of this reality is that God does not just improve someone's life. God doesn't just kind of do a work and kind of reorient our habits so that we start behaving better. God does a work inside of us so that he produces within us not only a new position, but a new practice. This is the transforming power of the gospel that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away and behold, new things have come. When God does that, there is always some evidence of it. There is always some fruit of regeneration. There's always some evidence that, that God has done a work in someone's heart. Now, there's different varying degrees of fruit in people's lives, but there's always going to be some evidence, some change, some display of the fact that God has done a work in their heart. We could say that sanctification is the real proof of justification, when someone is regenerated, when someone is justified, when someone is transformed by the gospel, it's going to show up in their life. A.W. Pink summarizes it this way. He says, the new birth is very much more than simply shedding a few tears during a temporary remorse over sin. It is far more than changing our course of life, the leaving off of bad habits and the substituting of good ones. It is something different from the mere cherishing and practicing of noble ideals. It goes infinitely deeper than coming forward to take some popular evangelist by the hand, signing a pledge card, or joining the church. The new birth is no mere turning over a new leaf. 
It is no mere reformation, but a complete transformation. In short, the new birth is a miracle, the result of the supernatural operation of God. It is radical, it is revolutionary, and it is lasting. End quote. That's a good statement. When we think about the power of the gospel in someone's life, it's not just kind of reorienting our habits and patterns. It is radical, it is revolutionary, and it is lasting. And what Paul wants us to understand is not only that this has taken place in our life as believers, but he wants us to see the specific manifestations of these changes that need to take place in our life accordingly. And so if you've been with us the last few weeks, you remember that there are five illustrations of these truths in verses 25 to 32. Five specific areas of our life that need to manifest this transformation has taken place from the inside out. First was in verse 25, where we said that we need to replace lying with the truth. That when someone comes to Christ, they move from the domain of lies to the domain of the truth. And so we are those who put off lies and put on the truth. Secondly, in verses 26 and 27, we saw that we are to be those who put off sinful anger and practice anger that at times is righteous. He says in verse 26 and 27, be angry and yet do not sin. There is an appropriate time for anger. There's some righteous indignation that should characterize us. But in general, we are to be those who put off anger because of its destructive force. Thirdly, in verse 28, we saw that we are to be those who put off stealing and put on sharing. We're not to be those who who steal from each other. We're to be those who work hard and work diligently so that we can have things and resources to share with other people. Fourthly, we saw last week that we're to be those who put off destructive speech and put on conversation that builds others up. It's in verse 29 and 30. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. So our speech needs to be not destructive, it needs to be constructive. And so these are all evidences of how a new life is going to manifest itself. When you've been changed, you will live out this new position. We come to the fifth one this morning, and we're going to spend our time in verses 31 and verses 32, where he tells us that we must replace hateful attitudes with Christ-like love. Look what he says in verse 31. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. When you come to Christ, he puts off in you those bitter feelings, those angry feelings, those those feelings of hatred towards other people, and he replaces them with attitudes of kindness and love and patience and tenderheartedness. And so as we think about this, we need to be those who then live out that very reality. So important for us to talk about this. We did talk about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about anger, but we live in a culture and we live in a society where anger is a huge problem. We live in a culture where people hate each other, where anger and bitterness and wrath and malice and slander seem to be the source of so many relational problems. It destroys relationships, separates families. These things lead to church splits, lost friendships, 
When seeds of bitterness take root in someone's heart, they, they bleed over into anger, which then leads into clamor, which then leads to slander and all kinds of abusive kind of attitudes towards one another. And we live in a society where this is so prevalent. I was reading this week of a woman who came in for counseling and she pulled out a notebook of 16 pages of all the things her husband had done to her over the years and she had been keeping track. And she shows up and she says, this is what I've been living with. Fix him. And he says, the first thing you need to do is get rid of your notebook. You see, these kind of attitudes of bitterness and anger and wrath towards one another are cancer that destroy relationships. They destroy churches. They destroy marriages. They hurt families. And we in the body of Christ are not immune to these we think that, well, those used to happen when we, before we came to Christ. And that's true, they did. But we as believers are, are still susceptible to these kind of hateful attitudes towards one another. Where someone does something to us that really gets under our saddle. And we get angry with them. And we get frustrated with them. And we start to think it over. And then it leads to anger and bitterness and rage. And you see how it goes. Hurtful, destructive attitudes that sow seeds of discord within the body of Christ. Paul wants us to know it has no place for it. There's no place for these kind of attitudes towards one another in in the fellowship of the saints. And so he, he addresses this issue once again, kind of coming to the issue of anger, but dealing now not just with anger, but with all the associated vices that come with it. And we need to hear this so that we can be a church that is not susceptible to destructive seeds of bitterness towards one another. So let's look at these. Let's just kind of work our way through the text. I want to give you three instructions this morning. The first one is is to put off hateful attitudes. Very simple, very straightforward, right from verse 31, to put off hateful attitudes. And as we evaluate this, I want you to ask yourself the question, is there someone in my life right now where I am sensing some, some bitterness and some anger and some malice towards? And if that's the case, then God wants you to deal with that specifically by putting off hateful attitudes. Paul follows the process that he does in the previous verses where he gives us a negative prohibition and follows it with a positive instruction. So we're to put off, in verse 25, lying and put on truth. In verse 26, we're to put off sinful anger and practice righteous anger. Verse 28, we're to put off stealing and put on sharing. Verse 29, we're to put off unwholesome words and put on wholesome words. And here in verse 31, we're to put off this bitter, angry attitudes and put on kindness towards one another. I want you to notice a few things about this verse before we jump into it. First, I want you to notice that these instructions are given to believers. I want you to notice in verse 32 that there's the phrase, one another and each other. Do you see that in your Bibles? Verse 32, there's the phrase, one another and the phrase, each other. These are relationship verses. You can see it up in verse 25 as well. It says, we are members of one another. These are some of those passages in the scriptures that tell us how we're to relate to one another. These are one of those passages that that, that, that dictate the kind of relationships that we're to practice and exercise within the body of Christ. There are some 60 one another's listed for us in the New Testament. Which shows us that there's a huge emphasis upon relationships within the church. We can't just kind of bump along and 
say things are going to work out and just assume everything's going to be fine, or worse, just sweep issues under the rug with each other. No, there's a huge premium in the New Testament placed upon relationships, specifically within the body of Christ. Someone has estimated that 44% of the New Testament is dealing simply with relationships in the body of Christ. And so these 61 another's are here to inform us about how we're to relate to one another. Things like love one another and be devoted to one another and honor one another and live in harmony with one another. Build up one another, be like-minded towards one another, accept one another, admonish one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be patient with one another. Consider others better than yourselves. Look to the interests of one another. Bear with one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Stir up one another to love and good deeds. Show hospitality to one another. And greet one another with a holy kiss. My wife and I's favorite one another. All, all of these one another's are given to us for the purpose of maintaining healthy relationships within the church. This tells us something very, very, very important. It is never okay within the body of Christ to allow relationships to sour. It is never okay within the church to allow relationships to get to a point where we say, hmm, we're just not going to get along with each other. That's just how it is. That's never acceptable. It's never allowed. And biblically, it's never a permissible option. So we can't allow relationships to fester. We can't allow issues to, to kind of surface between us and other people and just allow them to turn into something where there's a wall between us. That's never an option. And Paul wants us to know that here in the end of chapter 4. Secondly, I want you to notice that there's a progression within these verses. In verse 31, there is a progression moving from more subtle, internal, sinful attitudes that then move on to greater and more evident forms of sin. You see in verse 31, it starts with bitterness, that internal smoldering that kind of happens when someone offends us. And then it moves from there to wrath and anger, which is still kind of more internal, inside how we deal with that or respond to that individual. And then it goes from the internal to the external, where it moves to clamor, shouting, yelling, and then slander, where we revile that person, and then all the way to malice, where we hate them. There's a progression here. And so the way to deal with these issues is to go back all the way to the beginning and deal with the bitterness and start there so that we can solve these kind of relational obstacles. Thirdly, I want you to notice that Paul says these sins have to be put off completely. Do you notice in verse 31 there's a word all or every that occurs twice? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Do you see it? Twice the word all or every occurs there. And so literally he's saying every possible hateful attitude that you may experience or respond towards one another is to be laid aside. Every one. It's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? There's not a lot of wiggle room here. There's not a lot of room for just saying, well, you know, in most cases, I'm not an angry, bitter person, but that person, you have no idea what that person's done to me. 
You have no idea how they treated me. You have no idea what they've done to offend me. And I just can't forgive them no matter what happens. They've hurt me so... No, there's no place for that in the body of Christ. He says every possible hateful attitude is to be laid aside. Every one of them. There's no caveats, no conditions here. This is a comprehensive statement which says that there's no room for these kind of attitudes towards one another. I love this. Paul Paul doesn't psychologize this, does he? He doesn't get into your circumstances and say, well, let's try and figure out what happened in your childhood that's making you kind of this hateful, resentful kind of person. Let's, Let's probe the inner recesses of your heart and find out what your parents did to you to make you this kind of person. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say maybe your parents didn't love you enough or maybe you didn't have enough self-esteem. He's not talking about that. There's no probing of some sort of psychological cause for these things. It's a, it's a very simple, clear, black and white statement. Let all bitterness and wrath be put away from you. Period. So, Paul wants us to understand that when someone comes to Christ... There is a genuine, real, radical, lasting transformation that takes place in their heart. And if you're in Christ, then you're not that bitter person anymore. And you're not that angry person anymore. And you're not that clamorous person anymore. That used to characterize you, but that's not you anymore. So live it. So what are, what are these vices that he wants us to put off? Let's let's just examine them briefly so we can have an understanding of what what they are. First one is in verse 31. It's called bitterness. Let all bitterness be put away from you. This is where it all starts. This is where a breakdown in relationships really starts. It starts with bitterness. Picria, which is a resentment. a, A smoldering kind of under the surface attitude towards one another because they've offended you. That's where it starts, and it smolders, and it just kind of burns under the surface. You ever put grass clippings in a pile out in the sun? And over time, what do they do? They just start to smolder underneath. They don't, they don't catch fire right away, but they start to smolder, and they get hot. And under the surface of that grass is this smoldering kind of heat that begins to arise within this pile of grass. That's the idea. Bitterness is that under-the-surface kind of smoldering attitude, this brooding, grudge-filled attitude, an unforgiving spirit that arises in your heart because someone has offended you or hurt you or done something that upsets you. It's one of those root sins. You know the difference between a root sin and a fruit sin? A fruit sin is one of those sins that you see on the outside. It's, It's the unkind word. It's... It's the compromise morally. It's the immoral advances. It's something that you do to act upon your sin. That's the fruit sin. But there's root sins like pride and greed and bitterness that become a seedbed for a host of other sins. And that's the danger of bitterness. It's a root sin. Someone hurts us. Someone does something to really offend us. And so we start to think about it. We start to mull it over in our minds. And we we start to kind of process it and think about it. And and it it, it kind of just settles in our heart where we start to mull it over. Great danger. You start to keep score. 
We start to think not about how to resolve the relationship, but rather how to be right. And Paul wants us to understand that there's no place for this in the body of Christ. Now, you need to know that we live in a society that that really disqualifies this from sinful behavior and puts it in the realm of a condition or a, a disorder. I was shocked to read this week that in the fifth volume of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, there is a new condition which has been described and introduced as PTED, not PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. There are people who go through very stressful, difficult, painful times, like those who see war and abuse victims and those who are injured in accidents. There's, there, there is this deep trial that comes from PTSD, but he's not talking about that. This German psychiatrist has called something now, uh, defined this as PTED, post-traumatic embitterment disorder, where, he says, an emotion encompassing Persistent feelings of being let down, insulted, and being revengeful but helpless. So this is now a disorder that's made its way into the DSM. And and it's this disorder that comes as a result of perceiving a situation as unfair or unjust or being personally offensive to you. And if it's personally offensive to you and you have feelings of bitterness arising in your heart, it may just be that you have PTED, supposedly. The problem is, the Bible doesn't put this in a disorder category. The Bible puts this in a category of sin. Very straightforward. The Bible doesn't describe this this way. It describes it as an issue which needs to be put off, a sin that needs to be rejected. And so Paul says you've you got to distance yourself from the bitter spirit that, that may arise in your heart as someone personally offends you. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many may be defiled. The writer of the Hebrews says the same thing. I think he's talking there about apostates who come within the church who are springing their bitter root within the church, but the attitude is kind of the same. You not allow a root of bitterness springing up that causes trouble, and by it may cause many to be defiled. You put it off. It's deadly. It's destructive. It hurts people. It destroys relationship. It spreads like gangrene and it spreads its infectious bacteria to those around you. And he says, you got to put it off. Are you bitter towards anyone? Colossians chapter 3 verse 19, by the way, husbands... It says, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Why does he say that? I think he says that because in the, the other verse, he says that wives are to be submissive to their husbands. And I think he knows that wives have a tendency to, to buck that authority and don't like to live under that. And so he says to the wives, do not make, make sure that you're not allowing yourself to reject that or to fight against that. So be submissive to your husbands. But to the husbands, he says, do not be embittered against your wife because I think he knows that Husbands tend to be those who struggle with bitterness toward their wives. To put it off. Where does it go from there? Look at verse 31. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you. So here he moves now to the progression of the sin. So when bitterness takes root in your heart, where does it progress? Where does it move towards? It moves towards anger and 
wrath. Very similar terms. Anger here, the more subtle form, is the the settled anger. That internal anger that just kind of is there under the surface. It's, It's less sudden in its rise. It just kind of lives under the surface. And you're just kind of this person who mulls over angry attitudes. It's less explosive. It's less violent. Wrath is different, though. Wrath erupts. Wrath blows its top. Wrath is a sudden outburst of anger. It, it has to do with this boiling fury that just kind of erupts out of your heart as you are finally to your breaking point and you level it against somebody. It's wrath and anger. He says you've got to put those off. There's no place for those. You've got to make sure that bitterness doesn't take root in its heart, in your heart, and you've got to make sure that it doesn't progress to the next step of, of anger and wrath towards that person. So you've got to be one who recognizes that anger is one of those seeds that is a source of all other kinds of sin. Proverbs 29, verse 22 says, An angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgressions. The hot-tempered person is the one who is given over to all kinds of other sorts of sins. He says, you've got to put that off. You've got to put off the bitterness where it starts. You've got to put off the anger and the wrath where it can lead to. Then you've got to put off, verse 31, the clamor. You see the next one? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be put away from you. What's that? That's the shouting. That's the the, the, the yelling, the, the screaming. This is the person who hasn't been able to control their anger anymore, and so they let it all out. And, and they start to enter into a quarrel or a conflict with someone, and it gets to the point where they are fighting verbally. They're brawling. NIV says brawling. Put off all brawling or clamor. Screaming. Same word is used in Acts chapter 23 when the Pharisees and the Sadducees were arguing towards one another about the resurrection and they had been putting Paul before them. He was on trial. He was arrested and put before the Sanhedrin and he says something about the resurrection and that just launches the Pharisees and Sadducees into this great argument and debate and yelling session about whether there's a resurrection or not. And the same word clamor is used there in that passage. And so the idea is shouting, yelling, This is where it leads to. It starts with bitterness, anger, moves to clamoring and shouting with one another. You've all seen this. Just go to the stores. Just just go shopping for groceries. Julie was out shopping a, a year ago or so, and here's a mother and her son having it out in the grocery store. And the son was 60 and the mom was 80. She wanted to crawl in a hole and just like, really, you're doing this in public in the store? Just open your windows in the summertime and listen to your neighbors. Not long ago, we heard our neighbor and father and son just going at it. This is so typical of the culture we live in. We shout at each other. We get angry with each other. We we just vent. And Paul says, this is where it progresses to. 
It starts with bitterness, these seeds of smoldering hatred towards one another, and then it leads to anger and wrath, and then finally it can bleed into this shouting session where you yell at each other. And Paul says, if you're a Christian, there is no place for that in the body of Christ. None. Do you shout in your homes? Do you yell in your houses? Is your family a place where mom and dad are constantly at each other and yelling and shouting towards one another? You shout at your kids? Kids, you shout at your parents? I wish I could say I've never ever raised my voice towards my wife or my kids, but I have. There's been times where I've gotten frustrated to the point of raising my voice and even perhaps yelling. And God's really convicted me over that. that there's, there's no place for that in the body of Christ. And there's no place for that in our homes either. Dads, you can't yell at your kids. Moms, you can't yell at your kids. Spouses, you can't yell at each other. If you're a believer in Christ, there's no place for that in your family. And if you ever get to a point in your relationship where you've gotten into a conflict and you've escalated to the point of shouting, you need to remember this text that says, put it away from you. There's no place for that. Where does it move from there? From there it goes to slander. So it moves from bitterness to wrath to anger to clamor and then to slander. Now you've you've taken it outside. Now you begin to speak about the person that you've been in conflict with. Now you begin to malign their reputation and run them down with your words. That's what slander is. And it's the word blasphemy. And normally we associate the word blasphemy uh, with something that we do against God. We profane his name or we take his name in vain somehow and we, we blaspheme his name. It's language which profanes God's name or his reputation. But here Paul is using it in the context of relationships with one another. Don't blaspheme each other. If you've gotten to a point where you're now slandering someone and their name and their reputation, you have gone far into these destructive relationships. Do you know the Old Testament? It has been estimated that the Old Testament denounces the sin of slander more than any other sin. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 16 says, you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. Psalm 101 says, who secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. Remember Miriam and Aaron and Moses, <clears throat> Numbers chapter 12, when, when Aaron and Miriam begin to speak against Moses, there's a little sibling rivalry going on here. And they begin to talk amongst themselves, Aaron and Miriam do. Why does Moses get to be the leader? Who put Moses in charge? Don't we have something to say? Don't we have something to contribute to the leading of this nation? What did God say? Aaron and Miriam, front and center. Don't you dare malign my servant Moses and to make sure that you don't forget Miriam I'm going to afflict you with leprosy and she leaves that conversation leprous what does God think about slander he takes it very very seriously 
So you can see how this is progressing. It progresses from bitterness and anger and wrath and clamor to to slander. And then finally, the end of verse 31 says, and to malice. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And that's a general word for wickedness, kakia. It's a word that just means general badness or ill will towards another person. He says, you've got to put it all off. Put it all away. Eradicate this kind of hateful, vengeful attitudes that can characterize you. I don't think Paul is saying that you never get this way. He knows we're human. He knows that we're susceptible to these kind of these attitudes. He knows that we're not perfect. He knows that we're still prone to sin. And so I don't think he's saying you're never going to experience these things. Of course, we experience these emotions. We're human. But what he is saying is when you experience them, put them off. Don't let them take root. Don't let them characterize your relationships. It's quite a list, isn't it? Bitterness. Wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Just put every one of them off. Eradicate them. Like you do with cancer. When you have cancer in your body, they will give you chemotherapy or they will give you radiation for the purpose of eradicating every single cell in your body that is cancerous. You don't want to leave any of it there because it can rear its ugly head and can afflict the rest of your system again. So you eradicate it with powerful drugs and powerful treatments to remove every single possible cancerous cell. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He is you eradicate these kind of sinful, hateful attitudes from your heart. Are you? You can because they don't represent you anymore. This isn't you. You're in Christ. You're a new creature. You've been transformed by the gospel. And so this used to characterize you perhaps, but not anymore. You're a new creation. So of course you can remove these from your life. Listen, friend, you can't ever say, well, that's just me. I'm just kind of an angry person. I've just kind of given over to bitterness. My, my family was bitter. It runs in my family. I'm, I'm susceptible to the... No, you can't say that. You can't ever say, well, I'm just an angry person because my dad was angry, my, my grandpa was angry, and so it just kind of runs in my family. I, no, you can't say that. Because the power of the gospel transforms your heart and makes you a new creation. So how do you deal with this? How do, you, how do you put these things off? Well, let me give you a second instruction. You need to put on Christ-like love. So in the place of these kind of attitudes of bitterness and anger, it has to be a replacing of the virtues that correspond to those. You can't just put them off and say, well, I'm good to go. You have to put on the corresponding virtues. And so in verse 32, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. So the way you put off these kind of attitudes is to put on the virtues that are in their place. Like what? Like kindness. Kindness. This is the opposite of the vices that we just talked about. And so everything that those vices are, he says the opposite is what you're to put on. You're to put on attitudes of kindness and gentleness where you're occasioned by grace where you seek to bring blessings to others and serve one another through your speech and your conduct and your attitude, you put on an attitude of kindness. God's this way. 
Turn back just a couple chapters to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. If you're having a hard time being kind, you need to remember that as a Christian, as a believer, you have been the recipient of God's kindness. Why did God save us? Verse 7 says, In order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is rich in kindness. And if you're His child, He has lavished His kindness on you now and will for all eternity when He takes you to be with Himself. He has saved you so that the surpassing riches of His kindness can be displayed. God's kind. Remember Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says his kindness has led us to repentance. God's been exceedingly kind with us. And now he expects us to extend that same kindness to others. Are you kind? Are you kind? Is there kindness in your home? Is there an attitude and spirit of, of gentleness that pervades your heart and your relationships towards people here this morning and people in your home? How about the next one? Be tender-hearted. Over in chapter 4 again, 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Are you tender-hearted? This is a word, eusplagnoi, which means to have strong bowels and healthy intestines. That'll minister to your soul, won't it? Why would he say that? Because in Hebrew mind, your inner organs, your kidney, your lungs, your liver, your intestines was the seat of your emotions. Which makes sense because when you're nervous, where do you feel it? Right here. When you're anxious, where do you feel it? Right here. So in their mindset, the seat of your emotions was all right here inside of you. And so he says that you need to have healthy intestines towards one another. You need to have an attitude and a spirit of compassion, of gentleness, of good-heartedness, where you're sympathetic to the needs of those around you. That's what he's getting at. Where you have an attitude of, of gentleness and kindness in the relationships that you have in your home, in your church, in your fellowship with fellow saints, it needs to be categorized and characterized by what is gentle and what is tender-hearted. Are you? Thirdly, he says you need to be forgiving. You need to be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving each other. Are you a forgiving person? You see, the opposite of bitterness is forgiveness. And Paul wants us to understand something very clearly. He wants us to understand that people are going to sin against you. That people are going to hurt you. That even fellow believers are going to offend you. That you're going to have people in your life who will hurt you. Don't be surprised at that. This is not something you should be shocked at. You will have people in your life who genuinely hurt you and disappoint you and offend you. And Paul's point here is you have to extend forgiveness. You have to extend kindness and tenderness and forgiveness towards those people. In Colossians chapter 2, 
the parallel passage, he says something very similar. He says, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. You're marked by forgiveness. It has been well said that if you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. If you hold a grudge against someone else and you fail to forgive them and harbor bitterness against them, you doubt the judge, the one who will resolve those things sometime in his time in the future. It's his place to take vengeance, not ours. So he says, be kind, be tenderhearted, be forgiving. By the way, this, this is a command. This is not an option. And you understand that when when God gives commands, he also gives the resources to obey those commands. God never commands us to do something that he also doesn't provide the resources to accomplish. And so when he gives a command here to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving towards one another, God also supplies the resources for us to be able to do that. That's why I said earlier, you can never say as a Christian, well, I'm just an angry person. Or I'm just a bitter person. There's no place for that because as a believer in Christ, not only have you been transformed, but you've been given all the resources in Christ to be able to fulfill the commands that he's given us. Are you? Are you kind, tender, gentle? God's grown me in this area. I used to be somewhat harsh Struggling with being not gentle towards people. God's used my wife to help me grow in that area. He's used my my kids, particularly my daughters. Remember when we had boys? You know, I can do boys. I, I can do boys. I can wrestle with boys. I can throw the football with boys. And with boys, you go to the games and you hang out. You do guy kind of things. And then people were saying, you really need a daughter. I was wondering why they kept telling me that, but I heard it all the time. You really need a, a daughter, Todd. And so God has given us three, which must mean I have a lot of growth to do in that area. And he's been super gracious to use these little girls to teach me patience and being more understanding and being more kind and more gentle and more tender-hearted. And so bringing little girls into my life has been one of the ways that God has grown me from being harsh and impatient to being more tender and more gentle. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm still not Mr. Touchy-feely. But he's using these little girls to grow me and to sanctify me. And that's what God wants to do in your life as well. Perhaps it's your husband or your wife. Perhaps it's your kids. Perhaps it's the very people you're in conflict with in this church or somewhere else. God wants to grow you in an attitude of kindness and patience and gentleness toward those people because there's a bigger thing at stake here. It's not just your relationship with them. It's your sanctification and it's the integrity of the church that's at stake. Are you tender? Forgiving? Dads? Moms? There's one other thing you need to say as we close here. It's the third truth and that you need to practice the gospel in relationships. 
need to practice the gospel in relationships. And what I want you to notice is the very end of verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Why? Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. There's the motivation. And if you're struggling with someone in a relationship and you're just really saying, I can't do it or I won't do it or you have no idea how much this person has hurt me, you need to read that verse because God has forgiven you much in Christ. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you, you too are to extend that same forgiveness to other people. Friends, this is the gospel. And this is where the gospel begins to affect your daily life. It's not just something you put on the shelf and say, yep, 20 years ago I got saved. Here's the date in my Bible. It just becomes this, yep, look what happened in the past. No, the gospel needs to be a present reality in our life. And one of the ways you preach the gospel to yourself is in the context of relationships and dealing with conflict with one another. We need to recognize these gospel truths. We need to recognize that God did not get angry with us. God was exceedingly patient with us and God has forgiven us immensely. Let me illustrate. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to end with this. I want you to see how Christ perfectly illustrated this truth in Matthew chapter 18. Starting in verse 21. Peter came to him, to Jesus, and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Peter was being real generous there. Should I extend forgiveness seven times, Jesus? Maybe maybe six or seven? I mean, I'm trying to be real generous here, Christ. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Jesus is not saying here you need to forgive 490 times. And then the 491st time, that's it. He is saying, you will always be willing to forgive. You will always extend forgiveness. No matter how many times someone comes and asks for your forgiveness, you extend it always. If it's a thousand times, two thousand times, you extend forgiveness. And then he told a story. For this reason, the kingdom of God may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. There's some discrepancy on how how much that represented. Some say one talent was 15 years worth of labor. Some say less. But anyway, this is an insurmountable amount of money. This is at least $10 million, possibly up into billions of dollars. This This was an amount of money that no one could ever pay back. But this slave owed it. Verse 25, But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. And the slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion, kindness, tenderheartedness. And he released him and forgave him the debt. You see in operation the very virtues that we just talked about. Kindness, gentleness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. But you know the rest of the story. Verse 28. But that very same slave 
went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, which was a very small amount, just a few days' labor. Could have been paid off within a, a short time. And he seized him. He began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and begged to entreat him just as he himself had done to his Lord, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. The same forgiveness he had been granted, he was unwilling to grant himself. So, verse 31, when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Listen, we have been forgiven far more than we will ever have to forgive. We have been shown more mercy and kindness and grace than we will ever extend to someone else. And the point of this text and the point of Ephesians 4 is you extend that same grace. You preach the gospel to yourself and you remember the immense mercy and grace that God has shown you at the cross where he sacrificed his son and he put him to death, not because we deserved it, but because of his immense love and compassion towards us. Now go and extend that same forgiveness and grace to others. Who do you need to forgive today? Who do you need to have an attitude of kindness, compassion, tenderness towards? It's the heart of Christ. And may we be those who put off hateful attitudes and put on Christ-like love. Father, we, we need to hear these instructions. And we need to hear them because, Lord, if we're honest, too often we find ourselves susceptible to this kind of bitterness. Perhaps in our homes, perhaps in our relationships at work, perhaps here even amongst fellow believers in our church. God, we pray that by the power of Christ, you will help us to put off those attitudes. And Lord, help us to be those who practice the kindness and gentleness and tenderheartedness that Christ himself has shown to us. Lord, we want to represent Christ well. We want to live out the gospel well. So, Lord, I pray that if there are broken relationships here this morning, you will mend them. That you will compel hearts 
to be willing to go towards those whom they have offended. And you will resolve them for the sake of the gospel, the unity of the church, and the glory of Christ. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.